When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. And today we are honored to have three James Joyce experts from three different parts, two different parts of the world, actually. I'm not an expert at all. <laughs> we have uh, Sam Sloat with us. He's a professor of literature at uh, Trinity College Dublin, and he lives in Dublin. And uh, we also have Mark uh, Mamigonia with us. He's the Director of Academic Affairs at the National Association of Armenian Studies and Research. And John Turner, who holds a PhD in English from, uh, if I'm not, if I'm pronouncing the name correctly, Brandeis University. And he has published articles uh, on James Joyce. And Mark and John are, uh, are with us from Boston. It's 3 p.m. in Boston, Friday. And Sam is from Dublin. It's about 8 p.m. there. And I'm talking to you from Australia, Saturday, 7 a.m. Sam, Mark, and John, welcome to New Books Network. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Martez. I, I have a happy Saturday. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's a great Saturday to start talking about James Joyce. So, um, we're going to talk about this uh, book, Annotations to James Joyce Ulysses, which was published this year by Oxford University Press. If It is one of the most authoritative, if not the only authoritative source on James Joyce, a book uh, which is twice the size of uh, Ulysses with over 12,000 annotations. So I'll start uh, by asking you to introduce yourself a little bit, tell us how you came, became interested in your fellow field of ex- expertise, and particularly James Joyce. What, uh, how, how, how you dare to approach James, James Joyce and write an annotation, uh, write, write this, this book of annotations to his uh, extremely difficult novel. Sure. Sam, you might want to start. Okay. Um, hi, yeah, I'm Sam Sloat. Um, <clears throat> I started reading Joyce in college. I started with Finnegan's Wake and then sort of worked my way backwards. I imagine in a few years I'll be uh, doing the annotations to uh, chamber music. <laughs> Mark, maybe you want to... Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, uh, I've, I've been interested in Joyce in a casual way since I was a, a, in high school. I read a portrait of the artist as a young man one summer. And as I look back now, I wonder what on earth I got out of it uh, at the time. I can't really remember. Uh, but really, it was it was John uh, Turner uh, who, who uh, pulled me uh, into the deep end of the Joyce pool. Uh, we went to university together uh, and have been friends for, for many years now. And uh, he, he 
pulled me in by his uh, his depth of interest, I would say, and uh, led to my own. Um, and I don't work in Joyce studies. I work in Armenian studies. So there isn't a whole lot of overlap, but um, there is a tiny bit. And I'll talk about that some other time. Uh, I'm John Turner. Um, and um, as uh, Mark says, we went uh, to college together. Um, <clears throat> I, you know, actually, it was right as I graduated from college, um, <clears throat> I grabbed a copy of Ulysses, which I hadn't read in college. And, um, you know, that, that became kind of my immediate post-collegiate um, enterprise to, uh, to make sense of Ulysses. And um, it's funny, I remember talking to uh, a, a Canadian lawyer I met in, um, in Europe when I was traveling, and um, uh, the lawyer was talking to me about uh, um, the rights and so forth of these things. And it was just kind of, I don't know, I mean, that was a long time ago, and I wasn't interested in rights or anything at the time. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it, he's, he's, a, you know, he's a great writer. He's, he's a hard writer, which is part of why we're here today. Um, but he's not merely hard. Um, he's, um, actually, you know, very funny. Um, I hope we can get to that at some point today, but if we don't, I want to just put that in the sand at the outset that if, if, if nothing else is so about James Joyce, it's, it's so that he's funny. And I think he would be very sad if he thought that, uh, the only thing anybody ever said about him were, you know, very kind of serious things because he's telling jokes all the time. Um, so anyhow. Great. Um, yeah, I have this uh, Irish friend who's currently reading James Joyce and he does tell me, and he picks up more because he's from Ireland and he sometimes tell me, tells me, I can't imagine how someone who's not from Ireland can understand this book. And it makes me a little bit sad because <laughs> I might not be able to get a lot of those, uh, that, that, that kind of humor um, or slangs that are there. But anyhow, can you tell us how the book came about, how long it took to put it together, and what was it like collaborating among you three from two different parts of the world to 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 write this book? And what sources did you rely on to do that? Well, I'll I'll, uh, I'll, I'll jump in first. I'm uh, as I said, uh, John and I have known each other for thirty five years or so, and John and Sam and I have all known each other since the nineteen nineties, and we've all been involved with Joyce Studies since then. Uh, it's Sam's full-time job, more or less. Uh, for John and me, it's a it's a side gig. But the, the current Oxford book, uh, Annotations to James Joyce's Ulysses, builds on our earlier Alma Classics versions of the uh, version of the annotations, uh, which accompanied the text of the book and, and which is still in print and available. Um, so you know, by by one measure, it, these these annotations have been in the works for for years and years. By another measure, they've been in the works for five years or so. Uh, but the question you ask actually is is interesting because it presupposes that the annotations have been completed, and I don't think we necessarily see it that way. Uh, we see it as like painting the fourth bridge, uh, you know, uh, or if you're American, the Golden Gate Bridge. There must be one in Australia too. Uh, by the time you think you're finished, it's time to start painting 
again, uh, which might be a myth. Uh, I'm not sure, but it illustrates the point. Uh, you know, in other words, as soon as the book was published, we began accumulating improvements, corrections, revisions, etc., and we're doing so on an ongoing basis, praying for you know the arrival of the next edition with all things corrected. I, th- I think we actually had a month off after it came out in February, but yeah, Maybe. we did start. Then, then I noticed the first typo, and then is, is that that sent me into a frazzle. And so yeah, we had our first meeting about a new round of uh, of corrections and new annotations just like I think a few weeks ago. So. Uh, you, you asked about sources also? Uh... Uh, yeah, maybe what sources you relied on. Because as you mentioned, there are already some other um, annotation, annotated versions. I, I guess sure. one of them is uh, Gifford, which is, uh, which is a famous one. So w- what sources did you rely on? And what extra, let's say, information does this um, book offer to readers? Well, I mean, for sources, I mean, the book has a, I forget how many page bibliography I, uh, I, 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 I jotted down in anticipation of this just some of the big sources uh, Oxford English Dictionary Encyclopedia Britannica 11th edition Partridge's Dictionary of Slang and Unconventional English Brewer's Dictionary of Phrase and Fable E.W. Joyce's English as We Speak It in Ireland Oxford Dictionary of English Proverbs a Dictionary of Hiberno-English uh, the Encyclopedia of Dublin, the Dictionary of Irish Biography, the Catholic Encyclopedia, and of course, Tom's Irish Almanac, an official directory of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland for 1904. But also, you know, Joyce's letters, uh, drafts, note sheets, uh, writings by his brother, Stanislaus Joyce, his friends and contemporaries, and, and a lot, a lot more. Um, I'll, I'll hold off on addressing the question of the previous annotators, uh, Gifford, Mainly, and Thornton, but clearly they are sources uh, as, as well. I mean, just quickly to speak about them, um, you know, we dedicated our book to them um, because, I mean, candidly, this wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been doable without them. I mean, that's like a question that can't be answered. It wasn't done without them. <laughs> you know, um, and, um, so, you know, they, they put in a ton of time and effort, blood, sweat, and tears, uh, in a pre-internet age, which, you know, does, uh, obviously change the archival, um, situation, um, significantly. Um, you know, I would say that, um, they've all, they've both got their, their strengths and weaknesses. I, um, you know, probably we do too, frankly. Um, but, the uh, uh, Thornton restricts himself to what he calls illusions, which are, you know, strictly literary in nature, um, which really leaves out a, a ton um, when you think about Ulysses, where Joyce, you know, is uh, he's not just relying on literature as a as an input. Um, Gifford is much more, you know, um, Catholic, small c in that respect. Um, he'll kind of talk about anything more or less. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I can't imagine that there are too many um, people who have um, read Ulysses at all seriously at this point who don't have a copy of Gifford on their shelf that they consult regularly. I mean, you know, it's a great book. Um, so, but I would say, first of all, you know, all things have their time limits, I guess. I mean, I, it's a kind of sad way to think of it, but it was published in the 80s. 
Um, and before the first edition, what was the first edition of, um, yeah, yeah, the second edition from the 80s, the early 70s was the first edition. So, you know, it's there's that. Um, and then beyond that, I think we, we you know, n- not, um, uh, Gifford's book is fantastic, but, you know, ours is, it's more comprehensive, I would say. Um, we are, we, we go to great lengths to document you know, everything as best we can. Uh, there's inevitably something falls between the cracks there, but I think we are, you know, more comprehensive in our documentation than Gifford. Um, and there's, you know, 40, 50 years of additional questions about the book that we are responding to and attempting to answer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think following off from John, no work of scholarship can be definitive. And despite the sort of the, the, the big size of our book, we don't pretend to be definitive either. I mean, as, as Mark said, we've already started work on, you know, a new edition down the line. So it will be superseded first by us and then decades or at least years from now by other people. That's just the nature of the game. And also, as, as John just indicated, there's been changes in the nature of Joyce scholarship over the the, the last time the, the Gifford volume w- was put together. And so part of um, what we have reflects the changes in the nature of Joyce studies and literary criticism more generally. I Over the summer at the Joyce Symposium, I met um, Robert Seidman, Gifford's collaborator, and he was just shared how delighted he was that there was... Um, um, a, a successor volume. That, so that, that's just the nature of how of of of, of the game. And we we communicated with Don Gifford in his late years. I forget what what year he passed away. Uh, and at that time, he said that he had been accumulating corrections and revisions to his book for many years, and he was frustrated at the fact that essentially his publisher uh, wasn't interested. Uh, they were happy with it as it was, even if he wasn't. Um, so I, I, I hope in that spirit, uh, you know, what, what we have done is, is a continuation of, of what, what Gifford did. Uh, hopefully, hopefully it builds on it. No question. It couldn't have been done without it. And I've gone through some of the notes that you provided, the annotations, and it's just amazing the amount of scholarship that has gone into this book and you'll talk about it soon. I'm sure. And by the way, uh, John, I'm going to ask you to come up to give us an example of uh, Joyce's humor, maybe towards the end of the interview. Sure. <laughs> sure. I'm more interested to hear about that. No pressure. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about your the, the the nature of the annotations you have provided, because in, in the introduction to the book, you mentioned that your annotations do pro, uh, you don't try to provide an interpretation, but there are parts of the annotation, especially when you talk about the linguistic aspects of Joyce. Um, it's inevitable. You do need to provide some, um, some, some, some to provide an interpretive lens as well. So, can you talk about the, the the annotations, the kind of notes you have added? You you've added a lot of information about maps and, and places that Joyce tries yeah. to to map yeah. to, to to kind of outline in his novel. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's a funny thing. So, like, I think we've tried to be kind of you know, chased in a sense on this, uh, in this regard, tried not to be, uh, you know, heavy handed about this means this and this other thing means that, um, the, that, that's, um, an impossible task. Uh, you know, so, (laughs) 
um, just guilty. I mean, <laughs> I don't even know how to what to say except guilty because how can you really do that? But you know, there's a there's range, there's misdemeanors and there's felonies, and we've tried to be on the misdemeanor side of the equation. Um, we've tried to not um, lead the reader too much by the hand, um, not um, prejudge too much what the reader's question might be, even, um, but to um, you know explicate what is are the likely questions, um, you know. But I, I think it, it's it's. You, one person's interpretation is another person's fact. Um, and, you know, anyone who's read enough Nietzsche wonders whether there's anything but interpretation. So I, I'm not sure, but um, we, we've tried to be um, on the helpful rather than prescriptive side of the spectrum to the extent that's possible. Yeah, I think the helpful rather than prescriptive with um, the understanding that that's a precarious balancing act that will be contextually variable. That's probably the best way to answer it. And earlier you'd asked about sort of how the collaboration worked. And I think this is, I mean, the, the, the matter of interpretation is one of the areas where we had the biggest disagreements um, throughout. Um, and I think we moved to... Um, um, more of a consensus as 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 the work built on, but I think it's also that the, the diff, having different perspectives was really helped the project go along. That the disagreements we would have in, in terms of trying to figure them out, and we reached compromise is maybe isn't isn't the right word, but synthesized our different perspectives on it, and that's sort of in, in relation to the matter of interpretation. Yeah, even the most factual note is well, we have decided that this bit of information will be useful to at least some readers at this point. So it's inevitably an inter- interpretation laden process. We just try not to be heavy handed about it as much as we could. Yeah, and I mean the fact that X is annotated and not Y uh, is is an act of interpretation. So we didn't annotate everything in the book. Not every word has been annotated. It feels like it, but uh, <laughs> that's that's not actually the case. So decisions were made about this deserves to be annotated or needs to be annotated. Dare we say? Uh, and and that doesn't. Uh, so that's that's an act of interpretation. No apologies. <laughs> and uh, when when I started reading the introduction, um, I think this it started by saying advantages and disadvantages of an annotated bibliography, and I was surprised because to everybody it's a joy that there is this annotation. Why should the only disadvantage I can think of is the price? Maybe we should talk, you should talk to <laughs> pretty big disadvantage at the moment. I'm afraid, that, yeah, <laughs> or but, dropping it on yeah, your foot. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean. In, I mean, there are practical problems of having like annotations. In fact, if you've got a big volume next to a reasonably big volume, a big volume of annotations next to a reasonably big volume of Ulysses, there's the sort of the practical matter of turning from one to the other and also feeling that you need, that you can't, it project, it might project this image to a reader that you need to know everything in this book before right. you can fully understand Ulysses. Well, we didn't know everything that's in the annotations for many, many years while we were reading Ulysses. It's just, it's there to be helpful, but it's not there. It's also there to be ignored. And there are also just a, certain matters like, just a note might be very long and that might make it seem that it's important. It's just long because 
it, there's information that we had to sort of make sure is correct and accurate. So it it um, and that's just how it wind up that way. I think the longest note is on Bloom's insurance policy, and I don't think we would argue that that's the most important thing in Ulysses. Conversely, just because a note is short doesn't mean that the information it carries is trivial. Um, it also there are many significant passages in Ulysses that don't have annotations at all because there's no f- factual reservoir behind them, but they might, some readers might find them very significant in any number of interpretations. Or, or, or puzzling, frankly, you know? I mean, there are times when, I think it's fair to say, there are times when we weren't quite sure what something meant and we didn't have a note on it either. And, you know, that... I wouldn't want someone to think, and I would understand if they did think that we don't think it's um, at all mysterious. <laughs> um, that that is not a correct inference, and I, you know, sorry if someone dr- draws it because that that's, you know, the answers aren't all in there. Um, a lot of them are, um, a great many of them are, um, but you know, <laughs> yeah, not all. Yeah, I- and all, I just also this Joyce's engagement with writers in ways that can't be pegged to this is an allusion to Flaubert or so right. and so that's going to be missed. Just Joyce's just the ways in which Joyce is to just put this very crudely a good writer, just eloquent sentences. There's really nothing in the annotations that can comment on that. The, the, there's not much in terms of the the, the humor that we can say we we can't. Put a note that get it funny, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's a joke, people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, there's 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 a lot that just by virtue of the exercise that we have to miss. I, I think the the biggest disadvantage could be if it if the if a set of annotations ours or anybody's interferes with someone reading the book or God forbid uh, is taken as a substitute. For, for reading the book, um, I, our our annotations are are good read. I hope I think they're they're interesting and entertaining. Um, the plot may drag a bit at times, but anyway, they're definitely not the same thing as reading Ulysses. So people should read Ulysses. That's the main thing, and annotations should help them. I was toying with this idea that now that the, the, the AI stuff has gotten so good, that feed the annotations into some AI thing and have it reconstitute Ulysses on the basis of the annotations. Not be a good read. Be like, be like Pierre Menard, author of the Quixote, where it's it's yeah. a much better Don Quixote because it's a more impressive act to remember. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> summer memory. The original one is kind of you know pretty good. Mm. Uh, I will ask you about, you know, at the end, about your advice for first-time readers. Um, and as you truly mentioned, one of the, I don't know if daunting is the right term, but one of the daunting things is when you have Ulysses and also the annotation. And as Mark mentioned, yeah, switching back and forth might just disrupt that flow. Uh, I personally, I haven't finished the novel yet, I'm going to be honest, but I've, I've started reading it. There are times that I stop and go through the annotations, but I first go, I do try just to read the book. I don't understand many parts of it, but I guess that's just part of the joy and the mystery as well. If you want to pause the interview and finish the book uh, while, while, while we're waiting, uh, we got, I've got nothing to do. So uh. Let's talk a little about the, the history of the book, how it was published. Because Joyce has difficulty publishing it in Ireland. It was banned in UK and US. It, it was never banned in Ireland, but it was formally published. I 
I could be wrong. 1960s it's, or it's there. There's there's the expression an Irish solution, um, which is what they found to Ulysses. It was never formally censored as such. But starting at some point in the late 1920s, there was a post office interdiction, meaning that copies could not be brought in. Um, if an Irish publisher had wanted, they could have, but no one, no, no one did. Because at that, this point, there was it, um, somewhat strong Catholic hegemony over Ireland. That statement that could be nuanced quite a bit, but roughly um, that um, that. Um, that, that would be a description. Uh, John McCourt has a book that came out this year, Consuming Joyce, which really traces the history of the reception of Joyce in Ireland. So it wasn't censored as such, but it wasn't really available. There were communities of readers of it in varying ways from the academic to not at all academic. Um, when the first edition came out, Dublin bookstores did buy copies. And there's a letter from Yates to Pound in the mid-20s where he says that he sees Ulysses in, in the window of a bookshop in, in, in central Dublin. So it was available to, in varying degrees. Um, the the f- 1967 film Ulysses was actually censored in Ireland from when it came out up until, I think, the early years of the 21st century. So for a surprisingly long time. And, you know, Joyce had difficulty publishing almost everything he ever published. That's right. That's right. Uh, From Dubliners on on down. Um, From his his, 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 as a college student, his his essay as a college student that he did. Yeah. So with one tiny, with one tiny exception, Finnegan's Wake is the only thing he didn't have a problem with. Right. Maybe because nobody understood that, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's the well, the tiny exception was because it was published in installments in very, in, uh, um, mm-hmm. for many years before it came out, and one British journal refused to publish one in, uh, installment in the mid twenties. Nothing because of anything in the text, but just because you, Joyce had the reputation of, as a dirty right. writer, so that right. was published published elsewhere. But I think it's the way it got published because this is the author of Ulysses. He could get yeah, anything published yeah. after Ulysses. But yeah, Port- <laughs> Dubliners was arguably a, a long, a more problematic publication than Ulysses. Yeah, for, right? for, for reasons that are remarkably trivial seeming now, they're hard to understand in some sense. The uh, one point I would make about the um, publication history of Ulysses is that it was um, serial, it was serialized before it ever appeared in a book, and serialization was halted uh, in the, you know, when um, th- this is the beginning of the censorship in the United States. Uh, there's a, there's a, there was a post office um, act or something uh, that um, forbade the, the dissemination of obscene material through the mail. Um, and the, the, um, the 13th chapter, um, which is a Gertie McDowell and Bloom on the Beach was what um, triggered that. And, um, it, it, you know, um, Joyce would have had to wonder what the publication status of the rest was going to be. Uh, he, he kept working on the book and, and obviously finished it, but he did so. It, doing so was a bit of an act of faith on his part um, because, you know, it was now... Under under a van, um, and I would say the, um, the it became, especially in the fifteenth chapter, 
um, very, very, very much more obscene, um, as if to say, mm. you want you want obscene? I'll show you obscene. Um, so it, it really has um, uh, a, in my view, a very clear impact on the book itself, um, is what I would say. That um, I, I don't think the book that we read would read the same had it not been censored partway through. No, I, th- I think that that that's exactly right, and it's also because Joyce was because it was being serialized. Joyce was writing on deadline, yeah. and when 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 it was censored, the publication for at least a while and no, not seeming impossible. He's not writing on deadline. Yeah. He's he's basically just going crazy and just writing what he wants as he yeah. wants. I think he was making concessions to Ulysses in in the in the earlier form. Yeah. Uh, and, it's almost reverse concessions afterwards, uh, yeah. certainly in Circe. Yeah, yeah, so I mean, but it, the opposite. It, it, huh? it, it's a, John's basic point is right. Had you, had Ulysses not been censored by the uh, the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice, an organization I'm proud to say no longer exists. Um, I'm sure not. Ha- had that not happened, it would have been a very different and most likely much less adventurous experimental novel. Yeah, and. Uh, does his manuscript, the first manuscript, the notes that Joyce took to write the novel, still exist today? So why, or have you been able to see them in an yeah. archive or anywhere? Yeah. And has them in, in his home, as a matter of fact. <laughs> well, not, not in home city. There, um, there, there are a lot of different manuscripts. It took it took Joyce seven years to write individual chapters. Went through multiple drafts. Um, Joyce was also seemingly incapable of leaving any document unsullied by further corrections and his primary process of composition is adding. So on the galleys and page proofs, which normally are for where authors correct mistakes the printers might make just or subtle small changes, about a third of the text of Ulysses was added on those. Um, So there are tens of thousands of pages of manuscripts spread across n- numerous institutions, including the National Library of Ireland, but also but the rest are in um, the States, um, yeah. from Buffalo to the Rosenbach Buffalo, Foundation. Yeah. Um, yeah. Rosenbach Foundation in uh, Philadelphia, Tulsa, Texas. And I mean, those would be the main repositories, but there are others besides. So there's a lot, but there's also, there's a lot that's missing. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's certainly in terms of the notes that Joyce took, there are very few notebooks that are still extant, but there are, there are enough that we get some sort of sense of what, of, of how Joyce built the book together. Um, so you get an idea of what, of, of, of how he went about making it. It was a tremendous effort. There's I have a colleague at Trinity in the French department who was friends with Beckett in the eighties. And he said that Beckett, reported that one of the things Beckett said to him that would, the thing that he learned the most from Joyce was his dedication and commitment as a writer. Um, and they said that, that if you look at sort of Joyce's biography in terms of the, all the difficult things that are happening to him, he's also at the same time, he's writing tremendous amounts and writing continually. Yeah. Um, so it's, I mean, and and we have the sort of the 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 the, the manuscripts are at the very least the, the kind of documentary proof of that dedication. Like it's mm. not the book that came out. He, he didn't pull an all nighter for this. Yeah, I, I should say that uh, you know while Oxford University Press has been exceptionally cooperative and accommodating to us, if we tried to add thirty three percent more uh, at yeah. the proof stage, I don't think that uh, that 
cooperative spirit would have would have prevailed. So <laughs> I right. think about that much material being added that late in the process. And and as Sam said, it was almost always adding and almost never slashing uh, right. and removing. Uh, it, it's frankly, it's astonishing that as as typo ridden as the first edition in 1922 is it's it's a miracle that it is coherent at all i i think yeah it's i mean there the, the maurice darantier the printer that sylvia beach hired um i mean he was very very accommodating he, there, there, there was the, a good record of the correspondence between uh darantier and beach is, is, is at buffalo and he's saying that yeah i mean I'm getting these drafts of these editions. I can put them in, but as per our deal, I have to charge you an exorbitant rate for these. And so he, and Beach was just so accommodating. She, she footed the bill no matter what it was, but a significant amount of the cost of the production of the first edition was for all these extra galley and page proofs that Darantier was having to, was having to uh, produce. Mm. Also, since he was used to printing books in French and it's letterpress, he had to order stocks of additional letters because of the disposition of letter frequencies different in English. And uh, how did the book become a part of Ireland's literary culture and also pop culture? Because it wasn't an immediate success in Ireland. It took some time until they had, you know, Bloomsday. But now it, it is an inseparable part of Irish pop culture and also literary culture slowly i think yeah. is the answer yeah. <laughs> sam can elaborate i think yeah i mean or maybe um like was it the line about bankruptcy slowly at first and then all of a sudden um, <laughs> i mean certainly the, the scandal around it was a part of it and when it was first published in france in 22 and then in the u.s in 34 part there was a huge marketing apparatus um around it and surf was bennett surf the publisher at random house was aware of the reputation ulysses had and he was obviously wanted to lean into it but not lean into it hard like he didn't want to overtly say that it's a pornographic novel but he definitely wanted to allude to the fact that it's a controversial novel and so that certainly helped the fact that it um it was that it is a humorous book that certainly helped it i think go down quite a bit and events like bloomsday the annual commemoration of ulysses i don't think you'd see that kind of celebration around say ezra pound's contos um a work that's just as brilliant but i don't think has a funny line in it at all um i could could be wrong but um and, and it's it's about also the everyday. It's not it, it. There's it is a book of prodigious learning, but it doesn't, with exceptions, doesn't flaunt the learning. Though it's certainly not the way Ezra Pound right. does. Also, it it presents itself, um, albeit with this sort of um, somewhat indirectly, as um, Ireland's national epic. Um, you know, and, and it's published more or less, I mean, almost precisely at the moment that Ireland achieves a degree of autonomy, um, you know, I mean, within, I don't know, I mean, very close, actually. Um, so, it, it, you know, <laughs> um, it, to a certain sense, uh, in a certain sense, Joyce kind of, I, I don't know that he imagined anything like the current, you know, uh, 
um, Joyce Industry, uh, you know, in the Irish version, for instance. But he did conceive of this book. It's a sort of it's sort of a planned epic, um, which you could argue is something you haven't quite seen since the Aeneid. Um, so anyhow, I think that is part of this, perhaps. Mm -hmm. uh, Sam, I'm not trying to hijack the interview, Morteza, but I'm curious, actually, as well. When did the shift happen? Uh, you know, when it, did it go from being something that, you know, a few people cared about and commemorated to something that was something like a national holiday, you know? Right. And, and... It's, um, I mean, we, we were in Ireland. I think the yeah, shift, yeah. I mean, it, it had been it building for a while, but one of the first places it would have been noticeable was when the 1982 Centennial Symposium at Trinity that David Norris organized, because that was mm -hmm. the centenary of Joyce's birth. It was a big deal. The government paid a lot of money um, for it. It, right. and it definitely sort of oh, quite literally even bought Joyce to the streets. They did a reenactment of the Wandering Rocks episode throughout the city. So there was that really brought public attention to Joyce in a in a mainstream way that wasn't critical in a, in a moralistic manner. That's sort of the the way in which the sort of the discourse had, had permeated. Sure. Um, the other hand, the sort of the, the, the old guard did still kind of exist at that time. This is a story I heard from Declan Kybird that I haven't had confirmation from other sources, but that there was discussion leading up to the 82 centennial that they should rename a street after James Joyce. Um, and this was debated at uh, Dublin Corporation, the sort of the city government. And one councilman banged his fist and said, no, we cannot do this. That man was anti-Catholic and cruel to his mother. And so that... Well, and of course, the street they wound up naming after him yeah, uh, that, is that the brothel district. I mean. it's, yeah, that, that was 2002. Yeah, look at that either and, way. Yeah, that, that was 2002. Yeah, um, no, I so, realize. Yeah. And, and, and I've heard that that was done to some degree of cognizance of he's a, he's a writer of dirty books, so let's give him a street associated with the, the, the red light district. So, But 82 would have been the first sign of a turning. 92, there was a big symposium. Bailey's sponsored um, sponsored quite heavily. It was the first symposium I went to, and as a poor graduate student, I was drinking Bailey's at their receptions, and I have not been able to have a drop since. Uh, and if, if I may just bang my own little um, pet peeve. the pro One of the problems of sort of the popularity, the larger popularity of Enjoyce now is that when you run a Joyce Symposium in Dublin now, as I've done twice... You've, it's very difficult getting funding because there's so many other Joyce events that an academic event is not particularly attractive for various funding agencies. So it, it, it's at least for the, the the one this year, I, I I started early in terms of trying to trying to scrounge up funding for it. But yeah, it is it is a generally a big deal throughout the city um, um, in mid June. But certainly by 2004, when you, Sam and I both were at the uh, Centennial of Bloomsday Symposium, it was like Mardi Gras in Dublin, you know. Yeah. So, uh, hmm. yeah, there's, there's Denny's, which is mentioned once in Ulysses. They had a breakfast for thousands in O'Connell Street, sort of the main thoroughfare downtown. So it was it was it was carnivalesque. <laughs> and uh, and as Sam noted, there's this new book, I guess, Consuming Joyce, which talks more about the reception of Joyce in Ireland. 
Um, there is this quote that I thought was authentic, but after reading an introduction to your book, I became skeptical. <laughs> and I, when I first read that, I said, okay, that, that's quite true. But uh, I didn't, it didn't come across as really as if Joyce really had said that. But after reading your book, I was convinced of putting, and this is a quote, quote, of putting so many, that's Joyce quotes yeah. about Ulysses, of putting so many enigmas and puzzles that would keep the professors busy for centuries, arguing over what I meant. And that's the only way of ensuring one's immortality. So apparently this is, there's some doubt as to the authenticity of this. Uh, yeah, it, 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 that, that's, I mentioned one pet peeve earlier. This is one of my biggest ones in relation to Joyce. I would love to extricate this. I, I never will be able to, though. Um, it's, um, it, it, there, there are a number of, way, of ways of sort of trying to sort of doubt the, the legitimacy of this. It was a comment Joyce supposedly made in 1921, but it was reported to Richard Elman, who was writing Joyce's biography, it was reported to Elman in the 1950s. Um, and so there's a big gap in, bet- in between that. And the nature of the reception of literature within culture and the role of the university in that had changed significantly between the early 20s and the mid 50s. Um, and this is a point that's been argued by um, many scholars and many, and not at all in relation, or not always in relation to Joyce. Um, just one of them would be Lawrence Rainey's um, um, book, um, Institutions of Modernism. But Basically, the university would have not been the gatekeeper to the literary canon in the 1920s. The literary culture was much broader based and relied on um, any number of factors of which the, the academic, uh, the, the institutionalized academic would have been the smallest. That would have begun to shift by the 30s and primarily in the U.S. And so then Elman in the 1950s as an American academic coming to Europe to interview people for the biography would have been at the vanguard of the sort of the Americanization and the institutionalization of literary study. So it had shifted quite considerably at that point. Also, Joyce tends to say multiple, uh, if he makes a big quote like this, he would say it to more than one person. But we only have this one instance of this specific thing of wanting to write to the professorate. And then there's also the specific source of the quote is where another, at least two different types of doubt can enter in there. It was the element sources of a Frenchman named Jacques Benoit Méchin, who in uh, December 21 uh, was translating portions of Ulysses into French for a talk that was meant to introduce Joyce to the French literary public. Benoit Machin hears that Joyce is a schema where he sort of lists down little patterns for each of the uh, uh, book's 18 chapters or episodes. And Benoit Machin says, oh, I hear I got this scheme. I think it'll be helpful for me to uh, do my translation. Then um, according to Benoit Machin's story, Joyce says this line, I can't give it to you because I need to keep my immortality. But eventually uh, in, in the story that Benoit Machin tells Elman, Joyce relented, gave him the schema, and it was very helpful to me. The thing was, Joyce did give Benoit Machin a copy of the schema, and while bits of the schema had been published by the 1950s, the schema as such remained unpublished until the late 1960s. And so this line becomes a very good kind of way for Benoit Machin, a slogan for him to sell the schema, because Ulysses is a book of riddles, 
this document will unlock those riddles. And it's not, I, I, I haven't figured out who Benoit Machin sold it to, but it, it did go into private hands and Sotheby's sold it um, in 2018. So he, he was trying to sell it. And then the final way to go at it was that during the war, Benoit Machin had been a, a very active and prominent collaborator with the Nazis. And so he was arrested after the war, con, uh, sentenced to death. It was commuted. And so Elman is interviewing him just after he's released from prison. And Elman mentions nothing of this. But so if after the war, Joyce might not have needed the um, intervention of the professors for his uh, reputation, but Benoit Machin most certainly right. did. So I think that all these factors together, I think, really put this it, um, cast out. Plus, it also, beyond that, it reduces Ulysses to just like a kind of literary Sudoku, just a kind of all it is, is a series of puzzles and games that you have to do. The only right. intellectual pleasure is in that, when that, that it, it, I think it, it, it does a disservice to Ulysses, and it also frankly, does a disservice to the professors because we do more than just, you know, crack puzzles and so on. So there's more to the reading experience than just that. So yeah, there are a lot of reasons why I would love to, to, to just blast this quote out of the ether. You know, like so many of these other uh, probably dubious quotes by famous writers, I, I think this one has has stuck, and and I think Sam's right. The horse is so far out of the barn on this one; it's going to be very hard to get it back in. But it, it stuck because it sounds like what people think Joyce should sound like, uh, even yeah. though if under close uh, analysis, it doesn't really. Um, mm. it, it's like that famous Yeats quote: "Being Irish, he had an abiding sense of tragedy, which sustained him through temporary periods of joy." That famous Yeats quote that somebody made up somewhere and which now everybody thinks uh, is something that Yeats said or wrote or, or, or whatever. These things have a way of taking on lives of their own. Mm. I'm afraid this is an, an example and um, we're, we're you know, trying to hold back the tide probably in trying to uh, uh, pr- provide facts uh, that, that suggest uh, it, it almost certainly is either fake or wasn't said quite the way uh, it got handed down, but yeah, we do what we can. <laughs> yeah. And uh, let's talk about the significance of space and maps in James Joyce. It's so prominent. I was reading a book some time ago and I read that people, tourists who go to Ireland do try to kind of track the, 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 the way that, you know, Bloom walked that day in Ireland and they do try to find the places that are mentioned in Ulysses. So what is the significance of literary cartography or space in Ulysses? I mean, you know, there is that kind of Borgesian element where Borges talks about a map that's the same size as the country. Um, and it is um, not a, um, it's not a useful map because, you know, it, it's not representative. It is the thing. Um, and, and there's that element of Ulysses where Joyce talks about how you could reconstruct Dublin if it, you know, uh, if it ever fell off the face of the earth, you could, you could bring it all back from Ulysses, um, implying that his book is that kind of, is sort of that kind of map, um, that, that kind of map that is so exhaustive that, you know, you, um, and yet it's, you know, that's a, um, it's a, that is a, a fiction of the verisimilitude. Um, it, it's, um, you know, 
most of the streets in Dublin aren't described. Uh, most of the houses in Dublin aren't described. Most of the businesses aren't described, although a very great many of them are named. Um, so that's it, it, a first thought, but um, I'll, I'll leave it to, you, to the rest of you guys to... Yeah, I mean, the street I live on is not mentioned, Ulysses, and this constantly annoys me, even though around the corner, that street is, is, is mentioned <laughs> a few times in there. So, and I so think we've already... Right. John's right. Like it seems like everything in the in the the the, the, the cities. There's I once at a, at a talk, jokingly characterized Ulysses as Dublin fanfic, um, and there is certainly that element to it. And so the, the background is there. The, the line, "If Dublin were destroyed, it could be recreated." Joyce said that after 1916, during the Easter Rising, when large parts of downtown actually had been destroyed. So I think there's that element of as well. There's just, there is a kind of signaling the, the importance of Ulysses, but uh, signaling, rather signaling the importance of Dublin through what's there, but also through what's not there, through what's been lost. That's mm-hmm. a part of the negotiation he's doing. And it's very, very detailed, very, very precise to give this semblance of being comprehensively comprehensive, but it kind of isn't. It's just, it's the semblance of it is what, what George One of the earlier reviewers, George Slocum, had a line that, said that the, the, the Ulysses is as large as a telephone directory or a family Bible and right. of the literary and social characteristics of each. And he meant that as kind of disparaging, but I think that's actually a reasonably good line that it does, it does have the sort of the, the, the strong realist documentarian fashion of, of, of representation of the city, but also the kind of the symbolic, the metaphoric um, thing more, wouldn't quite say the Bible, but it does have um other levels of discourse operate as well, and they intersect. You know, and I don't know much about Dublin uh, urban policy, but I, I would have to think that, albeit belatedly, very belatedly, the 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 rise of Ulysses in the the Irish popular consciousness has has led to parts of of the city being or buildings in the city being preserved that might not otherwise have been preserved. No, oh, God, no, I'm wrong. No, see that? No. It's, I mean, Eccles Street was was complete was was completely no, gone. No, but to, I suspect yeah, today, sort of maybe. Free, yeah. No, no, that the House of the Dead. There's this ongoing thing. Yeah, the, the house right. where the the dead story was. Um, the previous owner wanted to turn it into a Joyce thing. He went bankrupt, and so it was um, sold and to sold to some. I'm not sure what level of, of profanity um, it would be allowable here um, to some cursed mm-hmm. builders who have no interest in its literary provenance and just want to turn and they, they claim they're going to turn it into a, ho- a, a hotel for backpackers. But what they're, what they're actually doing, and this is a common tactic that builders do, is buy an old building, wait for it to fall down or wait for it to b- become so bad that the city will be forced to tear it down. And then they have the land and then they can build something without being encumbered by um, um, le- um, various preservation um, things that would have if they were if they were trying to restore it. I mean, so it's just sitting that there on the key, on the keys in horrific condition. And there was various attempts to try and preserve it, but they, they've all come to nothing. So, so much it's, my optimism. Yeah, no, it's it, it, it it's when it comes to housing in Dublin, the the places that's where the ugly side of local politics really rears um, comes up. Uh, and uh, how about Joyce's uh, interest in Jewish culture? How does it manifest itself in in the novel? Because a lot has been said about Catholicism, but let's also talk a little bit about his interest in Jewish culture and um, its manifestation in Ulysses. 
I think it's, it's, this is something that really would only come to Joyce after he moved to Trieste, which is like the first time in his life where he would have encountered um, um, Jews on, 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 a, on a regular basis. Some of his best friends in the city were Jewish, at least in some technical or in, in some factual parts, the character bloomed. Elements come from Joyce's good friend, Italo uh, Svevo, and he, he talked about Ulysses as an epic of two races, the Irish and the Israelites, and it sort of sees various correspondences between dispossessed peoples trying to reclaim their own heritage and identity. Um, and that, that was a trope that was actually common enough within um, um, Irish politics at the time, espoused by people who are even themselves and who are themselves even anti-Semites like Arthur Arthur Griffith on uh, the, but the character of Bloom has a lot in common with the type of Jew one would find in Trieste and nothing in common with the type of Jew one would find in Dublin. Um, he's a Joyce has effectively imported a Triestine Jew into Dublin. Bloom is cosmopolitan, not particularly religious. Um, He's aware of his Jewish background, but he's, he's non-observant. Um, Marilyn Riesbaum has a great term for it. It's Jewish-ish. Um, he's also, he's of a Hungarian background, whereas the Jewish community in Dublin would have been fairly self-enclosed, very religious, and primarily Lithuanian. Uh, I think also one of the things that it would have attracted Joyce to Judaism in general was that the idea of identifying oneself in a Jewish, uh, in a part of a religious community without being religiously observant. And for Joyce and his complex relations to Catholicism, especially coming from the hardline Irish Catholicism, this is like a revelation that one could still be of this religion and not have it completely dominate one's identity, um, um, manner of being in every single aspect. Um, I think that would have been something that he would have found attractive, sort of the cosmopolitan side of it as well. So there, I mean, and there are a lot of ways in which that plays in the text of Ulysses. That one of the books, the foundational books for it, was a, a thing by a French philologist, Victor Berard, Les Phéniciens et l'Odyssée, The Phoenicians in the Odyssey, where Berard claims that the legend of the wandering Jew and the story of Odysseus are two different versions of the same story. So that's a kind of conceptual link that Joyce plays with. And in terms of part, I think the fundamental thing in Bloom's identities is lapsed Judaism. There's, I think, a very nice moment in Penelope. This might be a spoiler bit for you, where Molly remembers um, this odd habit Bloom has that sort of it's Jewish custom to have um, on, on your doorframe a menorah, a little rectangular box with a piece of scripture that you'd kiss your finger and, and tap it when entering and leaving. Molly thinks of Bloom's bizarre habit of doing the, 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 the kissing the finger gesture, but there's no mezuzah on the door. So this ritual gesture of obeisance to a missing sign, I think is a very beautifully encapsulates Bloom's ambivalent complex relationship with his Ju- Judaism and lapsed Judaism as well. So it's, there are any number of different resonances to it that Joyce plays that the, the Joyce plays with, and also can present Bloom as an outsider within Ireland as well. And that definitely has part, become part, part of his personality. Yeah. And, and Joyce seems to have gotten most interested, as Sam said, uh, in, 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 in Jews and Judaism 
uh, when he went to Trieste, when Joyce himself was something of a stranger in a strange land and, and must have uh, must have identified in some way. And also, I think it was, this is my own little theory anyway, that it was a way for, for Joyce to draw a distinction between himself and his 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 frenemy, uh, Oliver St. John <laughs> Gogarty, uh, who had written a series of ugly uh, anti-Semitic pieces in, in the Irish newspaper Sinn Féin in, in 1906, I think, and which Joyce yeah. had found utterly repugnant and uh, felt, felt the need to sort of, I think, to set himself in absolute opposition to. So, yeah. yeah. And... and um... Let's talk about the literary allusions in the novel. A lot has been said about you know, Shakespeare and Homer, but I'm also interested, I mean, please do feel free to talk about these too, but I'm also more interested to know about uh, allusions to uh, Irish literature as well. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of those. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, Joyce, Joyce was very knowledgeable about Irish literature. He was well-read, especially in, in the contemporary writers uh, or, or the writers who came just before Joyce. Uh, you know, keep in mind that, that Joyce was a writer who came of age in the late 19th, early 20th centuries when, when uh, you know, a time of great uh, intellectual and literary activity in Ireland. It was the period of the so-called Irish literary revival or, or renaissance. So he couldn't, he, he couldn't not be influenced and, and take this in, even if he made conscious efforts to distance himself from it. Uh, maybe, maybe, uh, you know, overly self-conscious efforts to distance himself from it. Uh, he, made, he made attempts to distance himself, but only in certain ways. I mean, right. like in, in, the, in the Skill and Charybdis episode, in, when Stephen's in the library talking about um, Shakespeare and the idea of a national epic, and and in some sense is trying to create what nation is Shakespeare the national poet of? Because it also plays with the, the, the German reception and the French reception of Shakespeare. In fact, the German reception is such that many German critics, it was a commonplace that German critics would basically consider Shakespeare a German poet. So it's the idea is a cultural appropriation and setting up a national identity. These were very active questions in Joyce's time, and he is actively engaged with them, but from a distance, and he is trying to set himself apart from it. One way of um, maybe characterizing it is Joyce is not the first Irish writer to have been influenced by Flaubert. That would be George Moore. Joyce, in his younger days, tried to actively distance himself from, oh, Moore is no influence on me at all. Not at all. And really, I'm sweet generous, and that kind of sort of typical Joycean arrogance. Then when Moore dies in the 1920s, Joyce goes out of his way to make right. sure that his is the largest bouquet that is sent there. The sort of like, I am the real descendant of George Moore, and so on and so forth. So it's he is distancing himself, but in a, he is he is still also trying to make it his own in this perverse, egotistical way. It would be a slightly un, well, not completely unfair way of putting it. But yeah, he is very much engaged with engaging within those debates. Yeah, I mean, he arrived on the scene too late to to sort of make the Irish literary revival his own. So yeah. uh, you know, he had to do his own thing. But you know, like yeah. most things that Joyce outwardly broke with. Uh, you know, whether it was the church or the uh, you know, Irish literary scene or, or, or his own family, uh, they, they, they shaped his thinking and writing 
deeply uh, in, right. in utterly foundational ways. That's right. I mean, he, he broke with a lot of things, but he broke with them very poorly. <laughs> <laughs> he left Dublin and spends his entire life writing and thinking about it, right? I mean, you know, so he, yeah. he it's very strange that way. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, one, one, one amazing thing that I came across a couple of years ago was uh, Jeremy Corbyn highly praising the book because it's a book about ordinary people. It's a book about working class people. And this is quite amazing because to a lot of people, this is a highbrow piece of literature. But at the same time, it's also about everyday life of people. And that's something that Sam, I guess you earlier mentioned, everyday life in, in this interview. So can you talk about that aspect of Ulysses and also its political vision? Or maybe it's also a good time to talk a little, because you have three or four pages in the introduction about the history of Ireland, very compact form, <laughs> which uh, which is actually, for me, it was amazing because it gives us some, some kind of a background to, to Ulysses as well. It's also in the States at around the same time Corbin made that comment, um, Pete Buttigieg made a thing, um, an analogous thing about the democratic qualities of, of, of Ulysses. And both, um, and for, I mean, the reasons in the manifestations were different, but then sort of Ulysses became part of the culture wars. And there was the, the weird little discourse ar- 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 around that. And yeah, but I think the, the Corbin line is interesting because it is sort of wanting to. St- Take away the again. It's what I was saying earlier about the, the 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 keeping the professors busy. That Ulysses is not the domain of the professors and the professorate, and making its its idea of presenting it as a difficult, riddle laden book is a kind of it's ours and it's not yours. And though it's it's anybody's book, you can pick it up. Um, you don't need. I, I mean, being a very poor salesman here, you don't need the annotations for it. Very um, shocking to him. Uh, but it, 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 it's um, the idea of difficulty and obscurity has become a kind of cudgel. Whereas it is a book that is, for all its difficulty, is focused on everyday life. It is one day, a small group of people, and it's an unexceptional day, unexceptional person, unexceptional city. Mm-hmm. Sorry, sorry, Irish tourist agency. Um, but that's all. But it ways in Joyce's strategies for making it difficult are because. Life is difficult. Human emotions are difficult. There are all these complexities. And so rather than resort to the standard realist cliches of misrepresentation, Joyce is creating his own new techniques um, to make these real, seemingly mundane experiences all the more vivid. To maybe put to a second analogous way, the wonderful line in... um, and Salt, I think, works in terms of how to understand the, annota- or the annotations. Uh, Lily Briscoe's revelation, at, or revelation is a bad way of putting it, but her understanding at the end of Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse, that there is no great revelation. There is no one vast answer to it all, but instead little daily miracles. And so that's what I think what, on the one hand, in its, in its particular strategies, Ulysses tries to illustrate all the little miracles of the everyday. And conversely, what the annotations are, we're not trying to uncrack the riddle to Ulysses. It's all about you know, this, but just the, the thousands of little miracles that are in there in the text that we try to elucidate. 
Yeah, I mean, Ulysses is a big book. It's a large and, and varied book. And so there's I, I, there's a Ulysses for the working class, the Ulysses for the armchair intellectuals, the Ulysses for the scholars. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, Jesus Jesus said, in, in my father's house are many mansions. Uh, I think Ulysses mm-hmm. is something like that. And I'm sure Joyce would appreciate the comparison to God the Father. Um, <laughs> but, you know, not everyone sees Bloom as as ordinary though uh yes. in various ways i mean for example nabokov uh said that far from being ordinary bloom is quote a good e- clinical example of extreme sexual preoccupation and perversity with all kinds of curious complications which is pretty yeah. strong stuff for a guy who utterly loathed freud and psychoanalytic uh approaches to to anything <laughs> not to mention not to mention who wrote lolita but uh you know so Perhaps we should say to to Vladimir Vladimirovich, uh, physician, heal thyself. But, uh, (laughs) you know, there's something that about Bloom that isn't just, yeah, just every man. I mean, to me, um, in some respects, the most important word in the book is the title. Um, Not the that's not the only important word in the Mm -hmm. book, Um, but uh, by by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, the book, so like, it's, I think, somewhat fashionable to speak of a kind of non-Homeric bloom, um, Mm. to complain about all this, you know, uh, superstructure, what have you. Um, And, um, you know, to some extent, um, I'm, I'm unsympathetic with the idea, but I understand, but I have some sympathy for the motivation behind the idea, I think. And I think, you know, you can, you can have a very good understanding of Ulysses, while, you know, thinking it has nothing to do with Homer, um, uh, you know, I don't think it's a, I, I think it's a, what would I say very good? I say you can, you can enjoy it quite a lot without thinking it has anything to do with Homer. And I think that's important. So um, in that sense, you know, if, fine. Um, but I think, you know, so in, in the Republic, um, Plato's Republic, uh, you know, Ulysses, which is, you know, just to say Odysseus, I mean, they're the same person, really. Um, old translations of the Odyssey called him Ulysses. Um, nowadays, I think it's an unfortunate effect of Joyce's book that, you know, Ulysses is really the title of a book by Joyce, um, whereas he simply meant to say, you know, the Greek hero of the Odyssey, um, who, of course, has a long afterlife in, middle, in the Middle Ages in Latin literature, ancient. So, so um, in the Republic, um, Odysseus is the last of the heroes to um, to assume a new guise for his reincarnation, and the rest of them all had, you know, really grand fates, and they're going to be the king of this or the prince of that or whatever. You and Ulysses finds they're going to reincarnate, and whereas you know Achilles is always going to be this, Ulysses winds up with this kind of crummy um, private life, and now whether it's uh, sour grapes, or whether it's by choice, he insists, um, well, I wouldn't, you know, I had enough trouble in my last life. I, I wouldn't want any of that. I would like a private life. So to me, Leopold Bloom is, you know, to be understood as the reincarnation of the hero Ulysses, um, living a private life, as we were told Ulysses would, Um but, you know, that's a kind of double, sort of a Janus-like existence. I mean, the, the, the private life is real. The ordinariness is real. And he's called every man and no man at one point. Um, and I think both of those are true. Um, and I guess, yeah, 
that's I think that's what I would say there. Yeah, I, I think also just maybe to, to talk in terms of what Mark was saying about all these different types of Ulysses CCs, which is a wonderfully challenging word to pluralize. Um, I think some of the better readings try to bring aspects together. It's like it's not exclusively the, the working class social realist Ulysses the home, right. or the Homeric Ulysses, but seeing how they all interrelate, to, or at least sure. how many of them can interrelate together. And like so, how like the everyday can also be epic in its own yeah. in, in yeah. its own way. Yeah, um, I do like to talk a little bit about the linguistic aspect of the novel as well. And I remember some time ago I was talking to someone about Derrida and how difficult reading <laughs> reading Derrida is, and it, um, and I was reminded of Joyce. And to me, he said that just. Just read Derrida and enjoy the music of the words as well. It's pretty much like Joyce first time. If even if you don't understand it, just read it. There's this music in in the structures and in the words. So can you talk about uh, the linguistic ingenuity of the uh, novel? And that's also the part that you do provide more interpretive. Let's say uh, you do provide an interpretive lens in your annotations as well. We definitely uh, well. I mean, the linguistic ingenuity of Ulysses is, is vast. Um, and, and yeah, that's one of the reasons why our annotations provide so many definitions and etymologies. And I think this is an area actually where our annotations are different from Gifford, say. Uh, Gifford doesn't provide a lot of definitions and, and etymologies. He just saw it as, not because he couldn't, but because he made a decision that that's outside of the framework of of what he wanted to annotate but we thought differently and uh that that it was important because ulysses encompasses so many different styles of writing and of speech it uses so many words that are likely to strike most readers as obscure or even sometimes familiar words being used in obscure ways that that we thought we had to to uh accommodate that and you, you do often hear, of course, about the musicality of the novel. Maybe because Joyce was himself musical, uh, and the book is definitely packed with a lot of allusions to music of all kinds. And one of the main characters, Molly Bloom, is a singer as well. Um, and there are definitely portions of the book, most famously the Sirens chapter, that are unmistakably musical. Uh, but more of the book. I would call not necessarily musical, but it, it's wonderful to hear it read aloud by a skillful reader just for the joy of hearing the flow of words and of, of the language. But maybe that's exactly what is meant by musical. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, jo- Joyce is a master of multiple types of prosody and could really put together sentences very well, but in many different ways. My sort of my global theory of all of Joyce's writing, because he didn't write many books, but they're all very different from each other, is that with each book, and sometimes even within a book, but when he's starting a new one, thinking, what have I accomplished well in that? How can I take that further? And so the range of stylistic play that he has at the end of a portrait, he takes that further into the first episodes of Ulysses. And as Ulysses progresses, does more and more of playing multiple perspectives, an interplay of many different styles. Joyce has a fantastic ear that he can differentiate multiple characters speaking purely on the basis of their individual and individuating patois. 
And conversely, it counts on the reader to be able to pick it out, the self of out a lot of X said, Y said, Z said, and so on. But Joyce trusts his ability to write them differently, and he trusts his reader to do, uh, to pick that up. What the Flan O'Brien, the 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 the, the Sort of the, the 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 third of the trifecta of great Irish modernist writers, Joyce uh, Beckett and O'Brien, has had a bit of sour grapes against Joyce for a number of reasons. But he commended this one line at the end of Cyclops: "A Mister, your fly is open, Mister." Where he said the second Mister is a perfect, a pitch perfect example of the Dublin demotic in ways that O'Brien said, "I just could not do that." And so that Joyce's ear for registering that is just is spookily good and so yeah and it, it's precisely because he has that ability you could he could have remained within sort of the act as of writing naturalistic short stories and in in, in in a la dubliners with that ability he had a reasonably good career but he wants to take that further what more further range of styles can i bring in to this say polyphony and so yeah it is um remarkably well put together it can be a delight to read silently or aloud um um how, how whatever rocks your boat as it were um there's this quote in your book that joyce said joyce said that history is a nightmare from which i'm trying to awake what what did he mean by that yeah um a couple of thoughts so um, and history is a little bit of a complicated category for Joyce. Uh, you know, in the 12th uh, chapter, the Cyclops episode of the book, uh, Leopold Bloom, um, under a you know, relatively, well, quite intense um, attack, uh, anti-Semitic attack, you know, it says, but it's no use, force, history, and hatred, and all that. That's not life for men and women. Okay, so... Um, force, history, and hatred. Um, and I think for, obviously Bloom and, and Stephen are not the same person, but I mean, it's a striking thing to me at least that, that the word history is, um, you know, uh, is invoked in both of those places. I, I would say, you know, Joyce is... <laughs> You know, to, trying to awake sounds like the Enlightenment, which of which Joyce is a you know complicated participant, a participant, but not um, in the most straightforward sense, I think. Um, but um, this notion that history is a nightmare, uh, I guess I would say that sounds to me like an Enlightenment concept um, in some sense, um, and I guess is Mark said something to me once that I think is relevant here as well. You know, does Stephen think he will be waking up from that nightmare? Um, you know, it, 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 it sounds more like weary resignation in some sense than, than youthful optimism. Uh, so, I, 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 you know, I, I'm not sure that that unpacks everything there, by the way, but um, that's a few thoughts at least. Well, it's also because right after Stephen says, because also he's trying to, He's 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 in discussion with the, the unionist headmaster of the school that he works, and he's sort of not not particularly um, uh, uh, taken of intellectually. And he after he says that line, he thinks, 
well, what if history gave you a back kick? And I think that that sort of is in reference to what happens in Circe when Stephen is drunk and confronting two English soldiers, so two representatives of British imperial presence in Ireland. So he meets two English soldiers, one of whom punches him. So in, in effect, um, he, he is given, if not the, the back kick, he's given the front punch by a representative of a specifically tangled history. Um, so there, there, it's, there are multiple ways in which that, that, that line can, plays out within Ulysses in terms of what Joyce is doing. And, yeah. yeah, and it's important to note that, of, of course, that the, the line is spoken by, by Stephen Daedalus um, and, and you know, may or may not be expressive of, of Joyce himself, although it probably is in some certain way. And, and Joyce was painfully aware of, of the fact that, you know, the country that produced him uh, was a was a colonized nation and had been for for quite a few centuries <laughs> at that point. Uh, and and being a colonized nation uh, imparts a certain burden to to people. Uh, and and um, you can't just wish that away. Uh, it it it's it's there. And and I don't think. Stephen is quite able to awaken from that any more than Joyce was able to awaken from it by by leaving Ireland. Uh, he he left Ireland and he got away from it, but he didn't. Uh, it didn't go away. It didn't go away. I would add, I would add one thing to that, and I think that's excellent, Mark. Is that he, he there? You know, I, I think it could be taken to you know this line before us could be taken. You know, that he wants to annul history, and I think yeah. that is wrong. Um, for many of the reasons Mark just pointed out, um, there is this notion in Aristotle that um, that poetry is the art of the possible, whereas history is the art of of, real, of what happened, um, and that possibility for Aristotle is higher than you know reality, um, and so I think in some sense Stephen is speaking of his own art and you know, not literally, of course he's literally talking about history in the ordinary sense, but I think he's saying that he hopes part of what he's saying perhaps is that he hopes in his work, maybe if he does have some hope in that sentence, he's hoping to move somehow beyond to some degree beyond what has happened into some new possible um, that hasn't yet happened. Yeah, I think that bring, bringing up that, that Aristotle, I think is important because Stephen explicitly thinks about that at the beginning of the episode when he's teaching. And that's actually one of, one of my favorite notes because it's one of the ones we really hashed over many, many days. And I think it, the, the final result is very, very good precisely because, because of that. And I think there's, so there's the, that there's that as the larger implication for that comment. But then there's also the immediate context in his conversation of Deasy is that Deasy is trying to justify a conservative unionist position. He's talking about all these historical examples. Just about every use he has, a historical example he brings up is wrong. Um, so I think part of, at least in the immediate context, part of what Stephen means is that the use of the historical record for ideological and didactic purpose. That's what I'm trying to get away from. Mm-hmm. Then there's also like, then the larger thing about exactly the sort of the literary recreation of that creating possibilities and new, that's the larger thing that's, that's behind. And that would be maybe more Joyce than just Stephen. Yeah. 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 That's right. I think that's right. 
And I'll just take a few steps back where I was reminded when Mark said that to the previous question, Mark said that it's a great novel to have someone, a professional reader to read to you aloud. It was just for our listeners. There's this great dramatized production of the novel on uh, Ireland Radio, if I'm not mistaken, RTE, yeah, okay. uh, which you have different professional actors. It, it immensely helped me a lot to figure out who is speaking, what part of the novel. So it's a great uh, start for uh, people who want to listen to the novel and then read the book or have the book in front, because I usually have the book in front of me and I just listen to the radio uh, production. <laughs> and great. just the last question, I want you to read your favorite section of Ulysses, tell us why it's your favorite, and then if you have any advice for first-time readers. Maybe we should start with John. <laughs> okay. Um, sure. So my mine is, um, it's, you know, not beautiful to hear, I'm sorry to say. Um, it's very brief. It's in the second to last chapter, the Ithaca chapter, where um, um, Bloom, or the narrator, is, you know, sort of um, kind of imagining, and the narrator really, is imagining this sort of vast um, number of suitors of Molly Bloom, and... Um, uh, really, the you know, the sixteenth of June, nineteen o four, is the day that Molly Bloom was was first unfaithful to Leopold Bloom. Um, it's not that she's you know slept with a couple of dozen fellows here, um, but this is. Um, I think Joyce thought you know the. I think he thought about Penelope and how a modern ironic Penelope would be interesting, and you know Penelope sleeps with the suitors in this version, that sort of thing. Um, I think he had a somewhat lighter version. I mean, it's hard to know, but I think he had a somewhat lighter vision of Ulysses when he began than when he ended. A somewhat more kind of um, um, simplistically ironic uh, version in mind. The, you know, kind of inversion of everything. The, the, the Lestragonians are these bad eaters. Um, the, 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 it, the, the Homeric parallels are kind of meant to be mostly deflations in, in, in large part. And if you think of the Odyssey, um, you know, uh, Odysseus and his uh, son, uh, Telemachus, you know, kill all of the suitors and they, um, and they kill the, um, the housemaids as well, who had lain with the suitors, uh, which I personally, you know, I find that that's, that one's hard to take. Um, and, you know, the suitors, you can argue, but the housemaids. Uh, anyhow, um, Joyce thought that was uh, tough to take, too. And so he has Bloom sort of, he, he summons these suitors, names, you know, dozens of them. They're not really lovers. The last one is. And he has Bloom, um, you know, get over this. And this is really true, I think, of a, well, it's quite true of a, a crisis in his own life from some years earlier. That um, in which Seven Eccles Street also played a role, but just very briefly, um, you know, what with what antagonistic sentiments were his subsequent recollections affected as he's thinking about these men? Envy, jealousy, abnegation, equanimity. That he slays the suitors by finding a way beyond hatred, force, hatred, history, all that. Um, and, um, and that is his epic act. And in, in that he actually does something, you know, I would argue greater than what Odysseus does. Um, 
And so in a book that's filled in many ways with these sort of deflations of Homer, uh, we have here something that, that is an equation and perhaps a bettering uh, of Homer. Great. Uh, thank you. Sam, would you like to go next? Yeah, um, we, we, had, we had a little d debate a few days because which passages to read, so we didn't tread on each other's toes. And with all this kind of, we were all gravitating to the same episodes. So I decided to do something very, very different. Um, um, normally, I would probably go for a funnier passage, but I decided this is, it, I, I definitely don't consider this a favorite passage, but it's a passage I find very moving. Um, it's at the end of the Wandering Rocks episode where there's a char um, character, um, um, Patsy Dignam. His father has died. The, the, the funeral was the set piece of an earlier episode. And so he's walking, he's going back home from some, doing some, some errands downtown and he's trying to sort of contemplate the changes that are in his life. And it's, just, it's the only time in Ulysses we have an extended sequence of the thoughts of a character who's not one of the three main characters Bloom, Stephen, and Molly so it's 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 unusual that we get there are a few moments we get snippets of internal monologue of other characters but this is the, the only one, it's a, it's a relatively long one and he's going to be sent to um, an orphanage um, um, very soon. Um, orphanages in Ireland this time wouldn't just be for when both parents were dead, just one dead parent would be enough. And there's some of the mechanics as to which one he's going to entertain. Joyce does a little bit of bait and switch. Um, and what was revealed um, recently, but would have been well enough known in Joyce's time, is that these, the, these institutions for derelict children were just rife with sadism and sexual um, 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 torture, just uh, horrific places. So his life is about to change in ways that he cannot fathom. I just, I find this just distressingly sad, but the way in which the, all this is articulated in terms of just, he's a 12 year old boy with interests of a 12 year old boy of the time. Um, uh, Master Dignam got got his collar down and dawdled on. The best pucker going for strength was Fitzsimmons. One puck in the wind from that fellow would knock in the middle of the week ne of next week, man. But the best pucker for science was Jem Corbett before Fitzsimmons knocked the stuffings out of him, dodging and all. In Grafton Street, Master Dignam saw a red flower in a toff's mouth and a swell pair of kicks on him, and he listening to what the drunk was telling him and grinning all the time. No Sandy Mount Tramp. Master Dignam walked along Nassau Street, shifted the pork steaks to his other hand. His collar sprung up again, and he tugged it down. The blooming stud was too small for the buttonhole of the shirt, blooming to it. He met schoolboys with satchels. I'm not going tomorrow either. Stay away till Monday. He met other schoolboys. Do they notice I'm in mourning? Uncle Barney said he'd get it into the paper tonight. Then they'll all see it in the paper and read my name printed and Pa's name. His face got all gray instead of being red like it was, and there was a fly walking over it to his eye. The scrunch that was when they were uh, screwing the screws into the coffin, and the bumps when they was bringing it downstairs. Pa was inside it, and Ma crying in the parlor, and Uncle Barney telling the men how to get it in round the bend. A big coffin it was, and high and heavy looking. How was that? The last night Pa was boozed, and he was standing on the landing there, bawling out for his boots to go out to Tunney's Ford to, to booze more, and he looked buddy and short in his shirt. Never see him again. Death, that is. Pa is dead. My father is dead. He told me to be a good son to Ma. I couldn't hear the other things he said, but I saw his tongue and his teeth trying to say it better. Poor Pa. That was Mr. Dignam, my father. I hope he's in purgatory now because he went to confession to Father Conroy on Saturday night. It is a moving passage. 
uh, Mark? Yeah, so like we said, the, the, the book is full of laughs. Uh, <laughs> we've all picked serious passages. And originally, we had all practically gravitated to almost literally the same section of, of chapter 16, the Eumaeus chapter, and then we all have all gone in completely different directions. So I'm afraid I can't pick a favorite part of the novel any more than I can pick a favorite Beatles song. Uh, but I picked one that I like very much and one that always resonates with me when I read it. And it's serious too, I'm sorry to say. It's from the Oxen of the Sun chapter. And like all that chapter, it's written in, in imitation of a particular uh, notable writer. This passage is in the style of John Henry Cardinal Newman a writer Joyce admired greatly. And in fact, he said uh, that where all the authors are parodied in Oxen of the Sun, Newman alone is rendered pure in the grave beauty of his style. So there are sins, or let us call them as the wor world calls them, evil memories, which are hidden away by man in the darkest places of the heart, but they abide there and wait. He may suffer their memory to grow dim, let them be as though they had not been, and all but persuade himself that they were not, or at least were otherwise. Yet a chance word will call them forth suddenly, and they will rise up to confront him in the most various circumstances, a vision or a dream, or while timbrel and harp soothe his senses, or amid the cool silver tranquility of the evening, or at the feast at midnight when he is now filled with wine. Not to insult over him will the vision come as over one that lies under her wrath, not for vengeance to cut him off from the living, but shrouded in the piteous vesture of the past, silent, remote, reproachful. It's, and it's a, essentially a foreshadows uh, what happens to Stephen in the next chapter of the book when he confronts or is confronted by the, the ghost of his mother. Um, sorry about that particular spoiler, but uh, so so it goes, uh, and and it gets at uh, how how heavily the past weighs on Stephen, and in fact how heavily the past weighs on on almost everybody in yeah. the book. Speaking of of escaping from from history, so yeah, it's a funny book all, all, all the same. <laughs> Great, uh, thank you very very much, and. Uh... After talking to you, I guess the, um, uh, even listeners who are listening to this podcast, they will know that this is the authoritative guide on Ulysses at the moment. And it's going to be for, I guess, a couple of decades at least. Uh, and I'm sure you'll talk to Oxford University Press to bring down the price a little bit so that those who are interested in Ulysses can you know, happily buy the book and they have the novel and buy the, uh, buy the, buy the book as well. Cross your and, uh, Yeah. Sure. And, and, you know, it helps them to better understand the novel. Sam, Mark, and John, thank you very, very much for talking to us about your book on New Books Network. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.